0: Hi, and welcome to the AI Experience. I'm Jeff Johnson. And I'm Lloyd Danzig. And in this podcast, we explore the topics and trends that are shaping the creation and dispersion of artificial intelligence around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the AI Experience. Today, Lloyd and I talk about optimization. A topic that is very fond to Lloyd, as you'll find out, and one that interestingly applies not just to AI, but also potentially to our own minds. We dive into the relationship between optimization and things like happiness uh, for the human mind and really think about how optimization can relate to machine learning and artificial general intelligence and what that would look like mathematically. It's a really interesting episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to another episode. Lloyd, this week, I thought we could um, talk about optimization. You messaged me late one night the other week, as you usually do, uh, talking about optimization problems and how inherently, um, you know the optimization problems we learn early on in let's say uh, Calc one, Um, effectively more complex versions of that is really what artificial intelligence is all about. So we thought that this episode, we'd kind of dive into some optimization concepts, how that relates to AI, and just see where it takes us. So Lloyd, why don't you kind of start off by um, paraphrasing as, as best you can, uh, kind of the note that you sent to me and, and your thoughts on optimization, maybe a little background too on optimization for, for people who aren't as familiar with the concept.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot, Jeff. So I think the exact text I sent you, uh, which as you referenced, I do many a late night, uh, was something like, uh, is it possible that life is just a relatively complex, convex optimization problem? And that is a bunch of jargon and uh, maybe a weird thing to send at uh, at 2 a.m., but but to step back, I think uh, an interesting discussion to have, regardless of, of, of our mission here, is what is an optimization problem, uh, and why are they so important? Why are they so relevant uh, to sort of the underpinnings uh, of the field of artificial intelligence? Because I would argue that, AI really very specifically, it's it's not predictive analytics on steroids, uh, as, as I say sometimes myself, but it's really optimization uh, on steroids. And I think understanding what optimization is uh, and, and thinking about life as a potential optimization problem is an interesting way to better understand what AI does. So first, just to kind of set the stage here, let me talk about what optimization is outside of the field of AI and uh, take a pause and make sure we're kind of all on the same page, because I think sometimes there's a failure, often on behalf of math teachers, to properly connect ideas in the minds of their students, and that individual ideas might be known to listeners, but the connections uh, thereof might not be known. So, You know, an optimization problem is generally one that that has two qualities. Uh, The first quality is that there is a definable, mathematically definable goal being sought. For example, maximize profits, minimize error rate, maximize top speed. Uh, And that second, that the pursuit of that goal, usually a maximization or minimization, Uh, is subject to mathematically definable constraints. So maximize profits, but your cost of goods sold cannot exceed this. Maximize miles per gallon, but the weight of the car has to be at least that. Uh, And that's how optimization problems work, and we've been doing optimization problems using rules-based systems and analytical frameworks for many decades, uh, totally independent of uh, the pursuit and development of artificial intelligence. And Jeff, you yourself, or, or anyone listening, may remember from you know AP Calculus or, or Calc 101, uh, the very first optimization problem anyone ever really learns. And often, calculus is taught through this example. The the problem is presented first, and then calculus is presented as the answer to the problem. And this is the introduction to the class on day one. You'll get a question, a word problem, something like, you have 500 feet of fencing. And you need to build a rectangular fence that maximizes area. How do you do this? And what you realize is, uh, particularly on the track you were on, is you first start setting up equations. You say, okay, area equals x times y, uh, where x is the width and y is the length. Area equals x times y. And I said that we have, uh, whatever I said, 500 feet. That doesn't matter. 500 feet of fencing. So 2x plus 2y equals 500. And now we have two equations, so, so we can take uh, x and express it in terms of y, or y in terms of x. So for example, just to do this quickly, if you had uh, 500 feet of fencing, you'd have 2x plus 2y equals 500, x plus y equals 250, so x equals 250 minus y. And then you can plug that into your first equation. If x equals 250 minus y and area equals x times y, then you substitute that in, and you see that the area is equal to y times 250 minus y. And if you graph that, that is going to be sort of an upside-down parabola. Uh, And essentially, what you realize is all you have to do is take the first derivative of that function, set it equal to zero, and that will be the value for y, in this case, if you were following along on paper, that maximizes the area where a equals x times y, subject to the constraint that the total perimeter is 500 feet. And, And that's sort of like the first introduction. And then maybe in calc two or calc three, Uh, or or maybe even the next day, depending on the the way the curriculum goes, uh, you learn not to do that with a two-dimensional shape and two variables that reduce to one because one can be expressed in terms of the other, but you say uh, you have a shoebox that you want to create Uh, That is going to hold a pair of shoes that has a specific volume and you want to minimize the surface area of the six faces of that shoebox so as to minimize the cost of whatever you were going to print uh, the ink that is cost uh, perhaps is very expensive and you want to minimize the surface area. Um, And what you realize there is now you have sort of these three faces. You have uh, your volume constraint, x times y times z equals blank, equals volume. And then you want to minimize your your surface areas, and you can't get that to an equation in terms of one variable. So now you need multivariable calculus. And things get infinitely more complicated as you add more uh parameters to your model or or variables uh to the equation or function that describes the relationship you're trying to model uh but with that said let me pause here jeff everything i just said does does that make sense does that ring true does that sort of cohere with uh you've had a ton of years of engineering and and math education lower and upper uh does that sort of
0: sound about right and make intuitive sense it it does and you know, it's funny, I was doing the math alongside with you. Uh, it's been a while since I've done an <laughs> integration. Hopefully my calculus teachers aren't listening. But man, and this is no diss against them, but I wish I had had a calculus teacher early on. Um, I think in college, I had some teachers that were, that were pretty good, but early on that explained things as simply as you just did. Um, you know, the closest I got, funny enough, was uh, a physics teacher I had in high school who really kind of explained, you know, the curvature Uh, of, let's say, a parabola and how taking the derivative kind of gives you the instantaneous slope and things like that start to really uh, shape how you... Think about leveraging math, which so congrats on saying that very, very (laughs) well. well, I appreciate it. I
1: think, you know, that, that there's an entire case to be made for the fact that education and the effectiveness of educational materials are often based more on how the particular instructor or medium conveys it. In a way that is accessible and relevant and familiar to the people learning it, and I think uh, one of the main failings that often happens in education systems, especially public ones, is a failure to understand what it is, what context would make a particular type of information or skill set relevant to students of different ages mm-hmm. and levels. But anyway, so I'm glad that's helpful, and so so we have this. We have we can imagine. All sorts of problems that we face where there are complicated nonlinear functions. You know, I want to figure out what think about the uh, the valuation uh, of a company that's based on mm-hmm. all these different moving parts and and imagine if betting odds. right, betting odds. I mean anything predictive weather analysis and the like. And so, you know, computing, uh, the derivatives and and you know these all these uh, Lagrange multipliers for for things like this can get very very difficult and and so one of the things that uh, AI machine learning engineers sort of figured out how to do was kind of hack this process and so essentially uh, to to sort of zoom forward to the current state of uh, neural networks being almost like the, the status quo industry standard for image classification and computer vision systems, what a neural network does, forgetting for a second about the architecture and way that this is handled mechanically, is let's say you are trying to build a, an AI system that will classify handwritten digits uh, and, and, and characters. Uh, there's a, 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 a database called the MNIST uh, database that has all uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands of labeled images of hand, human handwritten characters, A through Z, zero through nine, converted into 784 pixel, which I believe is like 28 by 28 pixel uh, grayscale images. And that is used by people to, to train image classification engines. And what you do is you create something, something called a loss function. And your loss function, if you remember back from statistics, is an example of a loss function would be the mean squared error. If you recall from basic linear regression, what you do is you have all of these points on the xy plane, and you seek to draw a line that minimizes the mean squared error, or the root mean squared error, which in that case is a measure of the distance between the trend line that you are fitting and each of the individual data points. and This in, is the R-squared value, the, correct? Uh, so the R-squared value measures how good of a job it does at that, yes. Got the it. step in yeah. between, the, the thing that you do is the, the a linear regression is just an optimization where your goal is to minimize the mean squared error subject to the constraints that are relevant to your particular linear regression. And so mean squared error is just one example of a loss function. And if you are trying to, for example, say, how can I predict the miles per gallon that a car gets as a function of its weight and those you have one dependent and one independent variable, it makes sense that the only thing you can possibly minimize is the aggregated error of essentially predicted values versus observed values. And that's what a linear regression is. When you have a more complicated thing, like an image classification project, you need to make a parameterized mathematical representation of the world, as you do with all modeling, and you need to figure out how how to mathematically represent the error involved in your image classification. And there are various ways to do this and various functions used and various sensitivity analyses that are performed to figure out which is the optimal loss function. But essentially, what a neural network does is it says, all right, I got a bunch of images. Here are ones that I know the answer to, what I know that they should be classified as. I'm going to somehow quantify the rate at which this neural network incorrectly predicts or classifies numbers or mm-hmm. letters, and seek to minimize that. Uh, again, oversimplification disclaimer galore here, but but generally speaking, that is what a neural network does, and that is a fancier version of what all AI engines do, which is figure out the the a way to mathematically define what it is that you want to avoid. If you're trying to use a facial recognition system that is incorrect. Classifications. If you are trying to predict the weather, that is incorrect predictions. You want to mathematically represent that and then minimize that. So what we've realized here is, first, starting with calculus, and now with AI systems, um, this process uh, that has been termed gradient descent. Gradient simply means you know an inclined or declined plane, and descent means to sort of step down. And, and what that refers to is is this idea that. AI functions by engaging in optimization by way of iterative descent down a gradient, where that gradient is the actual slope of the cost or loss function that is trying to be minimized. So you still with me there, Jeff? Does, does that all make uh, general sense?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, okay,
1: it does. Cool. So, so to, to so 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 to move on. So, so where does that kind of all fit into this whole picture? Well, first of all. Um, you know, you can imagine there are a lot of challenges involved in finding uh the minimal point in a very complicated landscape. And an example is imagine that you were dropped in the middle of a jungle by a helicopter, and this jungle has hills and valleys and lakes and streams and rivers and mountains, and you are tasked uh, for a huge potential reward at finding the lowest elevation, the lowest point in that whole sort of tropical jungle area. Well, you could look immediately around you and keep walking down until you can't walk down anymore. Every step you take, look ahead, look left, look right, look behind you. If any of those steps would be a step down, take that step, wait until you can't do that anymore, and you have found some sort of lowest elevation point. Now, what you want to decide is, and historically, that is kind of how we used calculus to find what are called local minima, and by hand, with very complicated functions, it's not too hard to find a local minima or maxima, but what can get hard is either verifying that you have found or finding a global minima Mm -hmm. or maxima, and there are various tasks for that. Rather than dropping one explorer in the jungle, you could... Drop 100 explorers in different parts of the jungle, wait till they all report back the lowest elevation, and then take the lowest one. You could make it so that each of them takes steps of different sizes when they're looking left, right, forward, and backward and taking one step. Maybe for one of those explorers, that's one foot and for one, that's one yard and for one, that's one mile. And these are things and are analogies for knobs and levers that can be pulled and twisted and tweaked in an AI model to adjust the learning rate. And the loss function and the training rate and different aspects that all need to be toyed with in order to kind of figure out the optimal output. So one of the reasons, Jeff, I thought this was was interesting is because what it makes people realize or I hope it makes people realize is that all you need to do to figure out whether and how AI can be applied in a particular use case is to figure out whether there is an optimization problem at hand. Mm -hmm. Is there something that has a definable, a mathematically representable or definable goal that can be pursued? Usually it's a minimization or maximization, although sometimes it can be sort of a specific target seeking, you know, set net profit equal to $5 million, uh, subject to Mm -hmm. definable Mathematically representable constraints and anything that you see around you look at uh, autonomous vehicles. What do they use? Well, first of all, they need to figure out uh, they need to have computer vision systems that are trained with image and 3D object classifiers, and those have all optimized their error rates to be minimal. The vehicle itself is is an optimizer. is trying to optimize for uh, you know uh, driving success and user experience uh, with a safety adjustment. And what you start to realize, Jeff, and this is the interesting question I texted you and wanted to pose to you is, well, certainly it seems that kind of the AI problems we're solving today are are all optimization problems. And one could envision that creating And artificial intelligence will just be one really, really complicated optimization problem. And if that is the case, well, that seems to mean that you could translate that sentence into saying the best way to recreate the human brain is Mm -hmm. by staging a complicated optimization problem, which would mean potentially that life, that that the life that we are living is an optimization problem. And before I give my piece, I want to ask for your Uh, your input, but what I would say would have to be the case for life to be considered an optimization problem for the sake of this discussion would be the following. First of all, it would have to be the case that for all humans, we'll talk in sort of uh, logic terms here, for all humans, there exists a set of strategies, strategies from which life can be approached, and two, that within that set of strategies... There is an optimization that can be performed in order to find, quote, the best strategy. And obviously, there's going to be a ton of other things that, 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 that come up here, but namely, the underpinnings will have to be that you would have to figure out a way to define life universally, A, in pursuit of a specific goal, and B, subject to universal constraints. And I have thought about this a decent amount the past few days, but I've been talking a lot and I'm curious <laughs> what what thoughts you might have.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot there to think about. I, I definitely, I do see your point. Um, I, I feel like this is a, one of those situations where the way that we think about things might be more of a factor in how we perceive, for instance, what our brains are doing than maybe what's physically happening. Hmm. Like as you're talking, part of me starts thinking, okay, yeah, like I can totally see that, you know, your brain is performing some type of optimization function, but how does your brain really work? Well, you know, down to an atomic scale, it's all these atoms moving around and they're more subject to laws of entropy and entropy doesn't really seem like it's an, it's, you know, a high level optimization problem though. Maybe it is right. I mean, in in a way entropy is trying to Uh, or the the laws of entropy and the fact that uh, matter can neither be created or destroyed and that things move to more chaotic uh, uh, types of arrangements, maybe that is kind of the universe trying to optimally get us there, right? I've actually always thought that human life potentially is like the universe's, one of the universe's takes at uh, increasing entropy uh, in, in the world because we just mess things up all the time. And, uh, uh, you know, I think at that high level though, yeah, I mean, if you take your life, for instance, the optimization of your happiness is something that people think about all the time. I mean, how Lloyd, how many life hack articles have you seen over the last few years, especially? And to me, that's, that's all about optimization. I mean, we're trying to optimize our days. We're trying to optimize our work days, our days off, uh, every minute in between and it is interesting because clearly there's something there that tugs at something primal in us, right? Some instinct to constantly seek uh, a better way of doing things, which I think, in a way, is what evolution is. So I, I do think there's there's kind of that optimization angle. I think where where things get a little bit tricky for me and my math is not. I don't think about things as mathematically as you do, Lloyd. Is you know how do you put A mathematical function on something like happiness.
1: Right. So 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 that gets tough. That that gets tough. And and I want to stop just for a second, because there's so much you just said to unpack. And first of all, I should say, Jeff, then this is gonna have to be another episode, but if your belief is that generally the way our thoughts are produced is that atomic and subatomic particles following the laws of the universe, namely the tendencies of the way entropy work, uh, and that that is what then percolates up to higher order phenomena, well, then it seems like we don't have free will and are living in a determinist world. And, and generally, you know, I I do believe free will to be an <laughs> Which illusion. Which I know you kind of think of is course. the case. So. <laughs> and, and, and my belief is that free will is an illusion, but but that, you know, we should have all of these conversations as if it is not because it's more interesting that way. Uh, but certainly... Which, if, by
0: the way, I'm, I'm coming around on.
1: Recently. Oh, really? Well, I, mean, well, I, I would hope been, so well, after I've been that comment. i a lot
0: about that. That man, well, because yeah, it, it kind of makes sense when you first of all, I read Sam Harris's book, um, uh, Free Will, uh, Free Will, yeah, and big fan. It was fascinating getting to the you know, the science aspect of it, which you know, I, I he's obviously not a scientist, but he's quoting other studies that have been done and the response activity. he is he by the way the he, he has
1: a he has a PhD from Stanford in neuroscience so so he actually okay well so, that's fair yeah. but he's not like a
0: practice <laughs> no, he's, he's not. not the one he's, he's not. not the one doing he what he was referencing studies absolutely right. um, he doesn't study the brain on a, on a regular basis Correct. but that is a fair point he's an academic uh, he's an academic PhD really not, exactly yes. and so he, he but he references these studies that you know really kind of it tweaked a little bit of the way that I thought about um, decision-making. Right, right? And, uh, and you're because talking
1: about the ones where, uh, where where with certain sensors hooked up to the brain, people can predict behavior
0: before humans Correct. seem to be. They and, say, hey, you know, either grab the door on the left or the door on the right. And before you see the frontal cortex light up, which is like kind of where your conscious thought is and, and uh, you know where the decision-making theoretically comes from, you see the motor cortex activating. So it's like, how how is that possible? Right, how, how could A- you and be I look, I want to save this for. for-
1: I know I want to say this yeah. for another day but but because <laughs> it's a whole discussion and, and, I, and I love it and I'm it glad is, to hear is. that you're coming around because I've been chipping away at this for a while but you know in terms of entropy first of all entropy is, is interesting to have brought up Jeff you and I had many uh, interesting late night entropy discussions in college which may or may not be a uh, common you know experience these days and one of the things <laughs> you always had said from early on is that I should think of entropy as the thing that builds up when you clean your room the more you clean your room the more <laughs> (laughs) it can get messy. And then when everything's on the floor, it's just a low entropy state. And as you organize everything, it's higher. And I remember a couple years after we graduated, I saw, I think, a cartoon in the New Yorker, a kid on the floor in a dirty room. His mom comes in. The kid says, mom, you should blame entropy. And the reason it's interesting here is because entropy is a physical, mathematically defined property that also seems to apply at these, like, multiple, almost fractal-like levels of abstraction things move Mm. toward a state right The, the way that things move toward and away from certain states of entropy on a molecular level seems to correspond abstractly to like human dynamics as societies and groups and at every level in between the level of society and molecules and that's pretty fascinating and the presence of fractals in our math, in our physics, is very fascinating. And it seems that many of the theories that have really permeated, you know, society and culture and science and academia and medicine, psychology, philosophy have been ones that have this almost fractal-like nature where they don't only work on a subatomic level, but on a human macro level as well. And I want to use that to segue back into the, the discussion that spurred this podcast that we're recording of... Whether life can be or is an optimization problem, and mm-hmm. I, and you know what I am thinking is that there is a similarity in, in terms of this fractal argument. So, first of all, if I was to submit that life was an optimization problem, I would have to do so subject to those sort of terms I set. And what I would say is that the thing that is trying to be maximized is this thing that economists have called utility. And I think the economist use of the word utility has been incredibly valuable within the economics community and sort of maybe counterproductive sometimes outside of it. Because many people, I think, get hung up on the same thing that you get hung up on, which is how can we mathematically define happiness or something like that? And I think that that is a valid question and an interesting one. And that the way that I pursue a discussion like this is to imagine that you had a supercomputer, that could detect the position, orientation, and velocity of every subatomic particle in the universe at every microsecond, uh, and use that to record whatever type of data you want. Well, surely in that case, if you could measure every neurotransmitter that you've ever had and, and all that, you could figure out what types of actions are better and worse at delivering you this thing that economists are calling utility. Now, it gets extra confusing because John Stuart Mill, philosopher, created this idea of utility for economics at the same time that he created his philosophy of utilitarianism, which says not only that happiness is the only thing of intrinsic value, but that consequences that, – that the happiness that arises – as the consequences of actions are more important than the intentions that produce those consequences. And this put him in stark contrast with a philosopher like Kant, who was all about intentions and that it's not just about Mm -hmm. this weird notion of happiness, but about perhaps this abstract notion of duty and sort of responsibility to society and as a citizen. And the point is that if you're going to use utility as something to maximize in life, you have to realize that that means something different for everyone. A psychologist, a psychologist like Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, talks about self-actualization. A philosopher like Nietzsche talks about the will to power. Everyone thinks about things differently, but very clearly, there. What I would say to someone who's protesting on this is, I'd say, "What's the next thing that you're looking forward to? You forward to in your life? Why, why are you looking forward to that? Well, whatever that is, that's what we're trying to maximize: good feeling, well-being, human flourishing." It's not the point is not to get caught up in
0: semantics. Certainly we do not What have... if someone said, I'm looking forward to not looking forward to anything? Look, there are masochists. Is that valid? Sure, there are masochists yeah. that exist. That's the other
1: thing. If pain is what you enjoy, if if what other people would consider suffering is what you enjoy, well, then it's not really suffering, is it? And those are just ambiguities in terms of the English language, not faults of the sort of model and argument that we are trying to make. So the point is imagine that this word utility simply means for everyone whatever the heck it is that they are seeking in their lives and what i would say is on that note not only if you want whatever it is that you're seeking call it happiness even happiness means something different for each person there are two factors that i think need to mathematically that would need to be adjusted one People in economics and behavioral psychology have known about and thought about for a while and plugged into people's utility functions, which is called a smoothing factor. It says that for any given amount of sort of happiness and enjoyment that you have, you'd rather smooth your consumption of those experiences over the course of your life than have them all at one time and then not have anything. And secondarily, it seems that the order in which you experience things matters. Like, if you're sad and then you're happy... The end result seems to be better than if you're happy and then you're sad, even if they were the same levels of happiness and sadness for the same amount of time. So I'm saying that in the optimization problem of life, we are trying to maximize, quote, utility subject to some sort of smoothing function and maybe like a discount factor or a timing function or something like that. Now, where I think it gets interesting is trying to define what is the constraint and is it possible to name a single constraint that people have in their pursuit of this maximization? And what I'm going to argue is that I think some intuitive people will, will, will realize it's, it's probably something to do with their time, that ideas, whether they're business ideas or personal or social ideas, should be pursued in terms of return on time invested, not return on money invested. If you have two business ideas that require $100 in capital and will give you $200 back over 12 months, but one of those takes 20 hours a week out of your day and one takes 40 hours, then by definition, the one that takes 20 hours is is better and more valuable because you've achieved the same financial return and saved yourself 20 hours a week. But it's not just about time invested. It's some amount of time invested adjusted for how close of attention You are paying because we all have in any given day sort of an amount of undivided attention that we could give an amount of like 75 percent, you know, attention that we could give it and so on. And so to me, it seems and again, I I know I've been talking a lot because I think about this maybe a weird amount, uh, and I'll pause here and get your thoughts. It seems to me, and I have more thoughts that I do want to go into, that life can be thought of as an optimization problem where the goal is to maximize your sort of smoothed utility, over, expected utility over time, subject to the constraint that you want to maximize how much of that expected utility you get, not just per minute of time invested, but per attention-adjusted, minute of time invested. And I'm curious how that kind of sits with you as a framework for thinking about things. <laughs> uh,
0: um, so there was something that kind of sat with me a little weird. Okay. I'm not saying it's not right, but I got to talk it out and think about it. So you said if you can do, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers you used. use, let's say 20 hours of work, and you're going to get $200, or two hours of work and get $200, you're obviously going to pick the do two hours of work and get $200. What, and I, I, and what, I what I
1: what I added into that, though, is I said, if you have two business ideas, and they both take a $100 uh-huh. investment and return $200, many people would look at right. those as investments that both have 100% ROIs, because they do in terms right. of dollars. And I'm saying that you need the time spent as a tiebreaker.
0: Sure. Okay. So, right. Thank you for correcting me. So, the thing that that to me kind of run, potentially runs a little counter to is you saying that you want to spread out the length of time that you're going to receive rewards over because theoretically you're going to fill that void with other things. And does that mean that you're you're now expecting more reward per period time? I, I Recently I've been thinking a lot about this, a lot about like what is the point of – working on something is it to make money is it to fill your time with stuff um how do you want to think about working and for me that's i mean i guess there's an optimization there um but i I, i've recently been considering like some of our thoughts on that like what you just said you know equating an roi to um the the time you've invested and that that time needs to be a tiebreaker if the dollars are the same is a very kind of capitalistic way of thinking and that if we lived in, let's say, a communist society, you might not say that. And so I've been thinking a lot recently about how our economic structure and our sociopolitical structures affect what it is that we're trying to optimize, essentially. And that, like the the democratic ideal around pursuit of happiness is also an interesting one to me because it's so undefinable. Um, you know, we've, they've done countless studies in, in various countries and the United States is never at the top of the list in terms of happiness. Um, and so I, I feel like if that is the whole point, if the point is to optimize the amount of people that can be happy or optimize the amount of time that each individual is happy, um, there's something that's there's something kind of illusory there that goes beyond just a simple quantifiable structure, which I guess is what I was kind of saying before. And you know, one of the things that that I was thinking about as you were talking is uh, the concept of decision fatigue mm. and how decision fatigue is related to our ability to optimize. Because um, you know, for those who don't know, th- this is. Fairly scientifically proven that you can only make a certain number of decisions per day and that at a certain point your your literal mental ability to make decisions starts to deteriorate and it becomes very stress inducing to try and make decisions and you'll either make poor decisions or you will literally be unable to make one. Everyone probably experiences this at the end of the day when you need to pick something to eat for dinner. I mean, I think that is a classic decision fatigue, especially if you work hard and you've been making decisions all day, even if they're micro decisions. You know, do I stand at my desk for the next 30 minutes or do I sit? Should I go to the bathroom now or after my next meeting? Those all add up. And at the end of the day, you just kind of want to do nothing. And I think that's honestly one of the reasons why Netflix has been so successful with their just start playing the next episode. <laughs> but, like, I'm curious, Lloyd, what you think about the, the fact that we fatigue on decisions. Machines don't they're obviously able to optimize. There's some like giddiness we have about that, but maybe decision fatigue is, is a sign that our brains aren't optimization engines, or if they are, they're, they're never going to be perfect. I don't know which one. So awesome points. And
1: first I would say that I think there's a distinction between claiming that life can be thought of as an optimization problem versus saying that our brains are just optimization engines. And I was Next really person. saying the former, although I do think I would also argue the latter. I wasn't necessarily saying that <laughs> here. Now, what I would say yeah. to your point, decision fatigue, I'm so glad you brought it up because I think it allows me to expand and maybe clarify. So what I would say is that, the first of all, the reason that decision fatigue exists is because decisions of any sort are attention requiring minutes or moments of time invested. Watching The Office on Netflix is time invested, and you do get utility from that. You laugh. You get to enjoy quoting the show with your friends the next day. But it's very low attention requiring, and that's why people like to watch their favorite shows at the end of the day when they're low on energy and fatigued. On the other hand— and That's why sitcoms are so successful, exactly, too, right? Exactly, I mean, you, you barely and all even this, have
0: to pay attention to the plot.
1: Right, reality TV, all this mindless kind of stuff, tabloid magazines and all that. And so to me, it's that decisions often require attention. And the way that I would explain decision fatigue is as such: I would say that if you are deciding between two things, like dinner between at two restaurants, or job A versus job B, or uh, you know, flight A versus flight B, I would say that if the marginal incremental utility that you can derive from your decision presumably if you're deciding between two flights it's because you want to most optimally get to your destination subject to a whole host of factors like price how comfortable the seat is whether it fits within your frequent flyer program etc so what i would say is if the maximum incremental utility that you can gain from making the good decision over the bad decision whatever it is that your increase is in utility from making the right decision, if that amount is exceeded by the expected utility that you could derive from taking this, we'll call it attention adjusted time that would have otherwise Mm. been spent to make the decision to do anything else, then you should flip a coin and proceed because otherwise, as you would say, the decision fatigue is outweighing the, positives that you could possibly accrue from getting the best decision. So it's funny because we're saying the same thing there. And that's why what I think people have to do is step back because you made the other point of well, why am I going to run a business that gives me a return on investment and spend less time doing it if the things that I'm going to fill those extra hours with are not enjoyable. And first of all, I would urge everyone to Bertrand Russell is just my favorite philosopher and overall smart person of all time, and and he has some awesome papers from the late 19th century on uh, the the role of work and leisure in society. What I would say is this. If you are looking at a business, my whole point is you want to look at the expected utility that you derive from your attention-adjusted time invested in that project, and that includes – The satisfaction you get from working on something you're passionate about or the dissatisfaction and dysphoria you get from working on something that you hate. And my feeling is that the issue of not being able to perfectly quantify things simply means that if we want to talk about this theoretically, we just have to take sort of a step back and almost put in like this placeholder or dummy variable where we admit that this value differs based on different people from day to day or something like that. But, but that again, to me, it seems that for any given business idea, you want to maximize your expected utility per time invest for, sorry, per attention adjusted moments of time invested. And those moments of time include the moments of time taken to either make or raise the money needed for the investment in the business. Raising money and going out and doing a Series A or a seed round, for many people, is an awful, awful, miserable process filled with rejection. And so an mm-hmm. idea that requires outside capital <laughs> needs to include the disutility derived from sending out 150 emails a day and getting ignored on most of them. Uh, so, so that's- Though there's
0: something interesting about that that I think is <laughs> – I don't know how to, how to quantify this exactly, but – There's some long-term utility to that that actually is real. So when I raised my first uh, round of funding, it was hard, and I got said no to. Um, it made me feel stupid. There were a lot of things that were painful about that. But um, I had some great support. I had some you know, good early on investors who said, we'll back you. And you know, we got through it. And we ended up building that business into a successful company that we sold, which was amazing. And then because of that, and maybe it's because of the success, or even if that had failed though, I've talked to entrepreneurs who first startup has failed. You look back at that early stage and you say, ah, I'm going to now extract some value in a look-back basis and realize that my character went up, that I know what rejection feels like, and that it's not me being rejected, it's the idea not being... Thought about correctly by somebody, so now I know how. To, so I'm now I know how to frame my ideas better next time, and I actually get real utility from that. So I don't know. I don't know how to quantify something like that, but I just I had to throw that in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would recommend checking out the work Daniel Kahneman has done uh, on particularly what he calls the experiencing self and the remembering self. And what he talks about is that for any given activity, uh, Jeff, you're a Red Sox fan, which which I resent enormously. And for every Red Sox game that you go to. There's a Jeff who's experiencing self, enjoys the game, eats a hot dog, watches the team win, uh, goes out, uh, you know, uh, enjoys the game with their friends. Uh, And then there's the remembering self that weeks, months, years down the road gets to reflect on that memory, look at pictures, talk about it, about with the people uh, that you were at the game with. Uh, And those two selves, uh, those two Jeffs, uh, they experience you. Utility very differently in different proportions over different time horizons. And moreover, sometimes things that were negative experiences in the moment, things that the experiencing self did not enjoy, uh, the remembering self very much enjoys, and vice versa. Uh, A classic example of the vice versa is pretty much any sort of. Of drugs or illicit substance where you very much enjoy uh, the time that you spend under the influence of the drugs, which is why people do them, and you very much do not enjoy uh, the long-run consequences and and perhaps, uh, depending on those consequences, you know, uh, reflecting and remembering the time in your life when you were indulging in substances that in the moment were quite euphoric uh, or inducing of euphoria. On the other hand, I'm sure if you think about what are your fondest memories, there must be a memory you have from childhood that at the time was not so great. You broke your knee and had to go to the hospital and then there was a, a power outage and some crazy story happened that embedded an amazing memory from which you get laughs and utility and happiness and smiles uh, and reflection and connection with other human beings. But it, it just goes to show, I think all of us have experienced this, that there's a big difference between the remembering self And the experiencing self. And my point in saying that is I don't think that it's a flaw, what what you're discussing. I don't think it's a flaw in my uh, model or my supposition that life can be modeled as a convex optimization problem. Uh, I I think it's a flaw in human nature, a flaw in the average human's ability to project their long-run expected utility over a complex decision space. And that's why I think people are so bad at decisions. Decision-making is hard. It involves trade-offs between things that don't have an obvious conversion rate. I trade my time for money at work, and then I trade my money for food at a restaurant. How do I know what the right trade-offs are and what the right conversion rates are? And in fact, they change not only from person to person, but from day to day and probably moment to moment. And I think perhaps that's why one of the most successful uh, psychological, sociological studies ever done was called the marshmallow test. Um, I believe what they did was they they gave a bunch of kids. I don't remember the exact ages. It was very young, two, three, four, five, six-year-olds maybe. They sit them in a room. They put a marshmallow down on a plate and say, I'm going to be back in 15 minutes. If the marshmallow is still here, you get to eat two marshmallows uh, when I return. But if you eat this one, there will be no... Specific consequences, you just don't get a second one. And they found over some crazy large sample size, number of parameters, ways of measuring things like quality of life and satisfaction, that the data point of which children chose to delay gratification and wait for the two marshmallows as opposed to one was the single greatest predictor of future self-satisfaction, self-actualization, and I think general well-being because of this, because people who are willing to delay gratification uh, can really, I don't know, I'd say make use of the compound effect, not of interest, but of hard work. When you only do things in a given day to get the payout at the end of the day, you cannot possibly earn as much of an aggregate payout over the long run than if you're willing to delay that exact payout. Because there are types of work that can be done by way of delayed gratification that often compound on one another. The work you do on day two can compound and exponentiate the efficacy and the value of the work that you did on day one. They don't have to be discrete, independent, assembly line type uh, sort of work modules. And you know, to kind of close on, on this sort of point, maybe uh, we'll, we'll have to do a part two and really get into, okay, so what does it mean for life to be an optimization problem? Well, what I would say is, is the following. First of all, uh, I, I think I understand that it, it might seem a little cold and mathematical to many to say, oh yes, Uh, The only way anyone should live their life is to maximize their long-run expected utility subject to a smoothing factor uh, constrained by, you know, return on attention-adjusted time invested. Uh, That's quite a sentence. That's quite a mouthful. I think many people would feel that it's, like, too logical, too mathematical. Uh, But what I would argue is that, for me, looking at things from this expected value uh, sort of perspective. First of all, makes it a lot easier to delay gratification. Second of all, makes it much easier to deal with the phenomenon and uh, of regret and looking back on decisions, wishing you had not made them. Uh, in my opinion, if you make the right decision from an expected value standpoint, and randomness makes it such that you do not achieve the optimal solution if you can stay disciplined, it is very easy to say, look, I made the right decision. There's always been a level of randomness that I can't account for. I don't regret the decision that I made and I would make it again because in a parallel universe, that stochastic process that led to uh, the coronavirus spreading and shutting down my industry, you know, perhaps would not have happened and I would have been successful. So for me, I I think there's tremendous value in reimagining the possibility that there is kind of a universal goal set that humans tend toward. There kind of is a universal set of constraints that inhibit that pursuit, uh, and that it's not necessarily saying that one has to program an algorithm for every decision they make, uh, but looking at things, I think, from a quantitative and analytical framework, for me, uh, I know has been very beneficial. uh, But but that said, I don't want to discount the fact that the question of whether life is an optimization problem is really central, uh, or could be central, depending on how you interpret it. To whether we can create artificial general intelligence uh, using, you know, machines and transistors and code, uh, and so on that point, you know, I think we should definitely come back. and uh, There's a number of things I'd love to discuss more uh, in terms of the implications and and other ways that uh, perhaps seeing things in this light can make uh, for a a better quality of living, just to give a teaser and an example, I would say that if one believes that they have a finite amount of attention to invest in their time spent on, call it, uh, utility-producing activities over the course of the day, to me, that is a great justification to not waste time and energy on silly, trivial fights and personal grudges and family drama and all the sorts of stuff and anxieties and neuroses that so many people can't help but but get caught up on. Uh, To me, if you can really reimagine your life as one in which you only have a finite amount of energy and attention in each day to spend achieving your goals, uh, that could help uh, sort of redirect any current energy and attention that is being wasted and focused on things that are simply unproductive and perhaps toxic. Uh, and I think those are kind of my thoughts without going uh, too much deeper and doing, I think, the deep dive that should be part two.
0: No, I love that. I think that's very well said. And it, it is true. This It's an illuminating way of thinking about your life and uh kind of you know pointing the mirror back at yourself so we should definitely continue on a thread kind of like this i think there were a few things that got brought up lloyd this was fantastic conversation uh thanks so much for the time today man all
1: right thanks a lot jeff we'll have to come back maybe for a part two have a great night